This is the Power to Podcast, show 104. Just knowing, like I said, in my experience with science, that they need to know, students need to know how to read in order to do some of these things um, that we're asking them to do. And so that's really why I moved into literacy, just knowing how important it is so that students have choice. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Ken Erman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the Reading Rainbow Rogers. Matt, do you remember that show? I sure do. I uh, I mean, I feel like it was a staple in all of our households as a kid, right? Yeah. Am I wrong like with staple, that? Staple, what, for, eight, for 80s and 90s kids, probably? Absolutely. LeVar Burton, 100%. And I don't know, you know, how many full episodes I watched, but it was definitely, you know, the theme song and, you know, the gist of it, it was definitely there. I remember uh, the theme song, but honestly, I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened on that show. Fair enough point. But yeah, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. I am doing really well. I've lately, I feel like I've interacted with a lot of my former students and in very meaningful ways, just like good, authentic conversations. It's neat to see them as 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. Uh, I actually, the other night ran into a former student who now graduated, who struggled a bit in his first semester of college. And while I was pouring my coffee at Wawa, we talked for about 10 minutes and I just gave him some advice on you know, ways to succeed in college about it's mostly about time management. And it was just a, I, I wish that I would have been able to give him that advice before he went. Uh, but to be honest, it really makes me miss the classroom. Oh, I, sure. I, I it, it's nice to have those conversations, but at the same time, I really miss having my, my group, my kids, my, my, uh, my class for the year. So it goes both ways. I totally understand that. How about you? Things are good. I'm actually in a weird transition. You know, I just uh, said goodbye to Anthony Wiggins, who's, you know, multi guest on the podcast. And I'm about to welcome another one, uh, Taylor Vocalis, uh into my classroom. So um, it's been really nice to get back to, you know, doing my, my thing in my classroom um, because I felt like when you give that up naturally, no surprise. Um, we as control freaks struggle with, you know, it's either all or nothing. It's really difficult to be in the middle. And I think I'm striving to be a little bit more in the middle, but I had trust in Anthony. And so he was doing a great job. I, you know, sucked it right back up the moment that I could get back to teaching. And so um, to give that up, I, I'm, 
I'm struggling with that a little bit. Uh, the kids and I are finally back into a rhythm. So to, to jostle it a little bit, we'll see how it goes. So but, will this be the same thing? She'll be there a couple days a week. Yeah. So it's kind of, intri- and then again, next uh, yeah. fall will be full time. Yeah. So what's interesting about it is, um, last year when I had Anthony, it was, uh, full year. I had him every single day of student teaching. Um, this one will be, um, I'll split her with a, uh, a special ed teacher in the building. So she'll do student t- teaching half with me, half with her. Um, in the spring, it'll be two days with me and one day with the the special ed representative. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I, I <laughs> It was one of those things that with Anthony and I can, I said to his face, so I have no problem saying here, you know, after week 11 uh, out of 15 weeks, I don't know what else we were necessarily doing when we were, you know, tapering down. Um, I almost felt like, all right, I'm, I'm ready. You're ready. I think we're all ready for everyone to kind of, you know, go into that next phase. Um, and I, I love him. He's, he was wonderful. I will be in contact with him hopefully for the rest of my career and his, but, um, it was definitely one of those things that I almost feel like eight weeks is not long enough of student teaching. So it'll be an interesting challenge, but we'll, now, when when we have these special opportunities to do goodbye kids um, and, you know, extra hands in the class or, you know, another way to support kids, this is my softball layup for our transition, yeah, FYI. Nice. Um, it, it's just one of those things that you, you can't not take that opportunity. It's well worth the time invested. For sure. Yeah. And, and good segue into our, our guest and our conversation tonight. So we had Tammy Robbins, who is, works for a nonprofit organization. They reached out to me to see if we could bring one of their one of their colleagues onto our show and talk about their organization and how they have a positive impact on education. And to be perfectly honest, I was hesitant at first just because it was an organization reaching out. It wasn't a typical teacher guest that we had, although Tammy was a teacher. She has an incredibly diverse experience. Uh, much more well-rounded experience than I can, that I could say that I have in, in the classroom. But also as I dug further and got to know, it seemed like a program that was well worth showcasing and talking about on the podcast. And that was absolutely the case. Uh, they're, the, they're doing great things to support students become better readers. And, and I don't think there is anything better that a nonprofit can do in, in connection with education. So any any thoughts you want to add before we bring Tammy in? Well, I, I just think that like uh, what you'll hear in this episode is what we kind of beg from community members, you know, hey, uh, classroom parents, can you come in and, you know, read with uh, a kid uh, for a few minutes, you know, take up some time and read 111 or, you know, um, read at home with a kid, just become, you know, uh, a advocate for fluency and what that can look like in the classroom, in the home environment, um, because it makes a difference in the kids' lives going forward. So, uh, to hear a program that, you know, purposely does this, you know, we have programs I mentioned a little bit later, like, yeah, there's school-based counseling and there's, you know, or, uh, occupational and, you know, speech therapy and these types of programs to see a literacy focused one was really uh, a cool thing to witness. Absolutely. So without any further delay, let's bring Tammy right into the podcast after we hear from the Teach Better Network. 
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay. How is my sound compared to Tammy's? Okay. All right. Everything looks good. <clears throat> Hi, Tammy. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm fine. How are you? We are doing great. I'm really excited to jump into this conversation tonight. It's going to be a little bit different than our, our typical show flow, so it's, it's going to be fun and exciting. So kick things off for us nice and simple. Officially introduce yourself. Let us know where you are coming from and give us your connection and background and experience in education. Well, my name is Tammy Robbins. I um, am originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I currently live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, actually, I work in the nonprofit education world currently. However, um, if I back up, I uh, actually, when I went to the university, I started studying biology, thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, through different experiences, I became really interested in research. And so I actually, after finishing my undergrad, I went to graduate school, um, continuing to study uh, science. I actually studied bacteriology in graduate school. Um, but while I was in um, my program or as I was studying, I always... Um, worked or volunteered in a lot of different areas. And usually um, my volunteer work involved youth. And actually, since I loved science, it was always like getting kids interested in science. And so I found that I really loved kind of like teaching and working with youth. And so um, I left my graduate program and joined Teach for America. And so that's how I entered the classroom. And um, I taught with Teach for America in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, I taught middle school science for two years. It's a two-year commitment, but I stayed on there for four years. I left the Rio Grande Valley and I actually went to Mexico to continue teaching at an elementary school. And there I taught English as a second language for students, anywhere from third grade to sixth grade. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was in Mexico, I stayed there about 11 years, and I came back to Tulsa. And so when I came to Tulsa, I entered the nonprofit education world. So, so I really want to explore and dive into the work you're doing in the nonprofit and how you're supporting education right now. But uh, you have a really exciting background in teaching that I, I want to explore and, and, you know, pick apart things that you learned through those experiences. So we've had definitely one guest that was involved in Teach for America. I don't know if we had a second, but I, I specifically remember one, uh, Laura Boyd, and I'm pretty sure she was show 13, which I don't know how I remember that. But uh, we talked a lot about her experience and and the value in Teach for America, and it's something that I don't think a lot of traditional educators know about because I think for the most part, people involved in Teach for America typically have a degree in something else, and then they are transitioning 
possibly into education, or I've even come to learn that people in Teach for America are not ever are not going to pursue teaching after that. There, it's just something that they're involved in while they're going to graduate or or through their undergraduate. So, what would you just say for an educate? Let's let's talk to future educators right now that are looking to experience Teach for America, whether it's because it's an opportunity to live in a new area and be exposed to teaching or maybe to solidify whether or not they truly want to be a classroom educator. But what, what was the Teach for America experience like when you first started and, and any suggestions that you have for exploring it or really uh, diving into it as a, as a new teacher? I'll definitely say that it was a really challenging experience um, because I didn't have, you know, some of the coursework that a person that's studying traditional education, like I got that after the fact. Um, However, even though it was challenging, it was actually one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had because um, I got to, you know, go to a different community um, and really become involved in that community. And I think through Teach for America, I could say for me, and I think for a lot of people, is that it does really help you to understand the education system. And it really does uh, pique your interest to just be involved in the community, to be involved in advocacy, um, which is really important when we want to do any sort of change. I, I don't know if you feel this way, Ken, but you know, I don't know if an undergraduate program that it's not that they don't try to do justice, but trying to realistically the best teaching in an undergraduate program is when you are paired with your student teacher or in your placement you know the pedagogy side is really important by all means but the real teaching doesn't necessarily happen until you're in front of kids um so i i wonder tammy i don't know how much you missed out on you know the the book smart side of education that you probably didn't you, you in very much as a as a smart and involved human being, you probably picked up on a lot of it very quickly. And to put exact kids' faces to the problems that you're analyzing in the classroom is probably almost an advantage that that catches you up quite quickly. I guess my my you definitely go ahead, please. have one thing that I was fortunate is I had a really good mentor teacher. Um, that really helped me. And then the Teach for America program, they do pair you with people that are going to help you along the way as well. Well, and I think that's where I I feel like uh, it's one of the greatest benefits of a program like Teach for America. I know some friends that went into Teach for America because they struggled out of college getting jobs. Um, You know, it's a little bit different in the teaching world today. Um, it's not that it's necessarily easy to get, you know, a contracted position, but um, there were a lot of my friends that would get positions and get furloughed and get positions and then get furloughed because of the, the age that we were in. Um, so they actually turned to Teach for America. They had that basis, but it gave them, you know, the two-year commitment that they could guarantee and, you know, uh, if they wanted to pursue it further. I guess my the question I'd love to ask you about is my my 
viewpoint of Teach for America was similar to yours, Ken, saying, you know, it's a lot of people that don't really have intentions to be teachers long term. And I guess what I want to know is, as someone that's obviously stuck within the educational field, do you think that that is an appropriate perspective for so an outsider to have of that program? Because it doesn't mean that you were any le- not you specifically, but people in that program are any less dedicated to being teachers. It's just, uh, I, I almost had it as this concept of it's a gap year type situation. It's a life experience. You know, I can feel good about what I'm doing. A lot of times the placements are in really tough environments um, that are, you know, chronically challenged to find, you know, uh, teaching replacements. So it's helping that school district too. So if you could maybe demystify or, you know, validate some of those natural perspectives that we have of a program like Teach for America, which I think generally we all understand it to be a really productive, helpful, helpful program. Yeah, I would say really, if we really look at schools, a lot of times, a lot of teachers are leaving the classrooms really early. There's a lot of turnover, even when people go the traditional route. So we do see that a lot of teachers are just teaching one to maybe five years, and then they're moving on to something else. And so, um, Yes, Teach for America, it is like a two-year commitment. And I know that even as I was serving, I did have to I did have those conversations with my coworkers that were um, you know, traditional teachers. Um, but I feel that the teachers that are there are very committed for that time period. And then I do see a lot of them, even if they go into law or they go into something else, they're still connected to the education field and working towards, um, you know, creating equity in within our communities. And you even added, you know, the advocacy part of things. I think that perspective of, you know, taking the experiences, you know, can we can speak my my real world application is just what happens within the four walls of my classroom. Um, but I bring that and I apply it to, you know, what happens on Friday night and I bring it to what happens at family gatherings. That is my talking points. And so I would imagine someone, uh, whether again, they're only able because they're pursuing other, you know, great adventures, um, committing to two years, it is a, you know, uh, they give their all in that time frame, and they're well supported. I think that's what you mentioned too. You know, finding a support system to, you know, make it a productive two years. Um, I think that's a, a an interesting point that I hadn't thought about. You know, uh, teacher burnout and the the length of traditional teaching is not that much further uh, along. So, you've already changed my perspective slightly in a, a short moment. So just to <clears throat> go over some logistics of it for listeners that are potentially interested in it, for our, our younger listeners that are still pursuing their degrees or possibly to pass this along to someone if you're already well-established in teaching, how, what's the, like, the process to get started? What, what, is, what is the required credentialing to be a part of Teach for America? Do I do this after I'm, I'm finished with my undergraduate? Do I pursue it before my undergraduate? 
Um, and, and if you don't know all the information, uh, that's totally fine. But just to kind of give us an idea of like, who is the, who's the right candidate to pursue joining Teach for America? Um, I, I don't know the, all the logistics of, uh, applying, but I'm sure just going to their website, you'd be able to, um, you know, connect with how to apply. They do have specific deadlines, um, that, you know, they have set in place. Um, I would say if it's someone, yes, who wants to make a difference, in the lives of children, it might be something that would interest them and they're passionate about doing that. Um, it would be a good opportunity for them. Um, but yes, and, and there's usually like a summer of training at a specific place. And then, you know, you are placed in a city and there's several cities around. Got it. And I think, you know, Matt, I agree with you that there's so much that undergraduate schools lack, and I think it's opportunities to be in the classroom and even encouraging the right mindset of when you're in that classroom. You know, when you we had your, your student teacher on, my advice to him was take over as much as you can as early as you can and be as active as you can. So even when you're in undergraduate and you're supposed to be just going in and observing a class, my recommendation to future teachers in those positions is ask the teacher, can I work, can I help a student one-on-one to learn how to do whatever you're working with? Or you should be actively involved because it's the only true way to learn how to teach someone is to do the active teaching. And that's where you apply the concepts that you're learning in classes. So you mentioned being in Mexico for 11 years to teach English as a second language. So I'm interpreting that as you're in Mexico. So they're, they're speaking mostly Spanish and you are teaching them English as if when I was in school, I was learning to speak Spanish or to speak German. So one, just confirm if that's correct or not. And just what, what, what brought you there? And what was, what was the initial, I guess, maybe shock level like uh, of going into a, a position like that where you are not speaking the native language and, and providing that uh, assistance and education for the students? Um, yes, that is correct. Um, and what led me there is just, um, I taught, like I said, in the Rio Grande Valley, um, about 98% of my students were um, Latinx students. And, um, you know, a very high Spanish speaking area. While there, i you know, traveled to Mexico to study Spanish, to try and learn. That way I can communicate better with families. Um, and so, you know, with that, it, I had the opportunity. I found out about a school and um, that was looking for an English teacher. And so that's how I was able to connect there. And in terms of uh, what was the shock value? At yeah, just first, like, you know, you know that, that first month there, you know, what, what, what was that experience like just being adjusting to the culture? We've talked about when you move from Illinois to South Carolina, you have to learn the, the local culture and, and the, the community that you're living in to make sure that you are connecting with the students and the parents. 
know, you're moving to an entirely different country. So just, you know, what was that first month like and, and how did you acclimate, adjust and, and invest in the community and the students? Yeah, I think uh, when I first moved there, it actually um, helped me to realize uh, some of my own misconceptions and even just the thought that, you know, you think that there's a country and like everybody's going to be similar. Well, no, even though, you know, it's Mexico, you think, you know, Mexican I mean, there's very, a lot of diversity there. So I was challenged in my thinking about people and, you know, just being aware of like the diversity within their community. So that first month was kind of eye opening to me and helped me to grow in my understanding. Um, and it was also difficult because it was hard for me to communicate with people because I just couldn't. And so that was hard for me because I do like to talk to people. <laughs> and so I felt it a little bit isolating, but I will say uh, I that those are probably like the best years of my life, I would say. And I really learned to enjoy it. I actually got married there. I had my child there. And, you know, so some of the best things happened to me there. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I... I want to talk instructionally a little bit. You go from a undergraduate that's in heavy duty science, heavy duty, um, to a, a placement where, again, for four years, had a, I believe you mentioned, a science emphasis, and then shifting to a literacy and language-based education um, what are some of the aspects that you felt like you brought from previous teaching experiences and did you have a difficult time losing your uh, initial passion in teaching? And I don't mean that, but like, was it difficult to move away from teaching science, something you cared about and loved and had studied to teach language? Or did you find that an extra value because you've done it, you've been, you know, felt successful in those areas? Um, it was up for a new challenge. Well, I will say that you know, I taught science, I taught middle school science. Um, but we also know that there's testing involved with even subject areas. And so in Texas, there's an eighth grade science test that students had to take. And I taught eighth grade there two years of the four years that I taught. And so while we were, you know, preparing students and then looking at the, the results, it's, well, they're not doing as well because it's not just that they have to learn the content of science, but they have to be able to read the test and understand what's being asked in order to be able to be successful on this state assessment. And so with that, it's like, um, Every teacher needed to be kind of like a literacy teacher and um, give kind of instruction in giving strategies for comprehension. And so through that, you know, it opened my eyes to see like the true importance of reading and literacy through that experience. And then while I was in Mexico, really kind of the same thing, the students starting in third grade and the school went up to sixth grade. They had to do testing. And, it, you know, we had the same conversation. It's like 
the students need to get better in their reading and comprehension. And so through my experience there, knowing how key reading is to future success, like in middle school and even beyond, um, really um, helped me to, you know, when I saw the posting for reading partners, um, it really, you know, caught my eye and caught my passion because just knowing, like I said, in my experience with science that they need to know, students need to know how to read in order to do some of these things um, that we're asking them to do. And so that's really why I moved into literacy, just knowing how important it is so that students have choice. Tammy, you're hitting on something that I think is is super important. And it's honestly something that I wish I realized a little bit more when I was still teaching fifth grade. I, I feel like I started to kind of conceptualize this and, and pay attention to this more as I was transitioning out of fifth grade. But now as an instructional coach, seeing this in the different classrooms I'm working with, especially at a secondary level, our, our teachers become content experts. They go to school as a content expert. So they go to school to study, like you said, science or math or social studies. And sometimes we can see that disconnect and forget about the importance of reading and how much heavy reading there is in all of those subjects. I was recently working with another teacher who was actually tutoring a, a student from a different district, but we were talking about the, the student that she was tutoring. And you know, she said he was doing great. He was understanding all the content. And we were looking at a test that he had just taken and he failed it. And she said, can you look at this? Are you missing anything? Am I missing something? You know, what did he not understand that I thought he understood? And I looked at it. And the first thing I said is he's struggling to read. He clearly knows how to do all of the operations related to this content. He is misinterpreting every single word problem. He's doing correct computations, but he's doing it for the wrong problems or he is, let's just say a basic example, there, the question is how much is the total bill and the student is giving the tax, right? They're not, they're, they're not taking the tax and adding it back into the original cost of the item and, and totaling it up. They know how to do that. They're misinterpreting what the actual question is asking. So they're understanding the mathematical processes, but they're missing the concept that's being asked. So I totally agree with you about the, the huge importance, regardless of what we're teaching, what grade level we're teaching in that reading. So, so give us a, an idea of what Reading Partners is, uh, you know, what the organization stands for, how it operates, you know, just educate Matt and I, as well as our audience on exactly what Reading Partners is. Okay. So Reading Partners is a national nonprofit organization and we have a mission of um, helping students become lifelong readers. Um, and we do that by um, empowering our community members to provide one-on-one -on -one tutoring um, in literacy. And they use a structured um, lesson in order to help students gain skills. And we generally work with students early 
Um, we work with kindergarten through typically third or some regions work with fourth and fifth graders, but we really want to catch them early to give them the skills that they need because we know that once they kind of get to that third grade level and on, they're not like learning how to read, they're actually reading to learn. And so we want to give them the skills that they need so that they can be successful as they're reading to learn. I know I'll probably misrepresent it, but I know that there's a huge discrepancy between the likelihood of a kid to graduate high school um, and whether or not they're proficient at reading at that third grade level. I know, you know, at Peckley Valley, where I teach, one of our mission statements is to make all learners uh, proficient readers by third grade. And so we have adjusted our schedule to over, and I don't want to say overemphasize in a negative way, but it is distinctively our priority. And um, I know we spend a tremendous amount of those kindergarten through third grade, but even, you know, primary and pre-K and there's now a birth through four, you know, program within that district, because I think that early intervention, we're all universally seeing. Um, I mean, I remember the pedagogy side where they talked about, you know, uh, a child, you know, in a, a unfortunately poor environment, middle class, and then high, like upper middle class the amount of vocabulary words at such a pre-school level is such a discrepancy. Everyone's starting at a different spot in that race, and it's, it's difficult to, to kind of level that out. So I guess to, to talk a little bit about that program, you mentioned, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one and, and trying to catch the kids early on in that program and uh, the supports. First off, kind of where is the, the organization you said it's national? Where is it headquartered? And what are some of the um, kind of missions that you're, you know, I feel like, especially post-pandemic, um, we are revising um, things like SEL and, and incorporating that into all instruction. How has your organization changed and adjusted to the modern day kid um, that that you're servicing? So uh, we are in 12 um, regions. We're headquartered out of um, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and we are in 12 different regions. You can go to our readingpartners.org organization uh, page to see where we're located. Um, I am in the Tulsa region. Um, and even though Tulsa is kind of a small city compared to some of the other cities we're in, like we're in New York City, um, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, Tulsa, we have a really great community that's very supportive and we have been able to really serve just about as many students as some of those larger cities, but it's really due to like a lot of community support. Um, so some of the things that Reading Partners um, does that I think really uh, is a benefit to our program is, first of all, we do teach reading using um, a systematic um, and explicit instruction of phonics, which has been um, shown to be the best way to teach uh, reading and skills. 
So first of all, we are um, always looking at research and um, adjusting based on that research. Um, because of the pandemic, a lot of the schools were shut down. And so our team was able to also pivot in order to create what's called Reading Partners Connect, which is a virtual tutoring platform. And so we do offer that one-on-one -on -one tutoring over in a virtual setting. So during COVID, you know, students were at home. And so we would connect with students while they were at home and their volunteer would be at work or at their house or wherever. And so they were able to work together and do lessons during that time. And we still continue to use that platform because we have students that are at the school and they connect with their volunteer who might be, you know, at work or, you know, at home. It's just that they might find it more convenient for them to connect over the computer as opposed to driving to a school setting. So that's one of the ways that we have um, innovated during this COVID. We have incorporated a lot more SEL lessons as well. Um, you know, starting from COVID um, to this point. And so students are um, learning about, you know, regulation and being mindful and having a growth mindset and, and so forth. If I can just follow up real quick, Ken. So one of the things that I think is interesting is you mentioned being able to pivot because of the needs and, and you know, pre-pandemic, one of the beauties I would imagine in your non-education but supportive education program is the ability to identify a problem and come up with a solution that, you know, can turn around quite quickly. So as you see needs with kids, I mean, is the organization, and this is just clarity for me, is you mentioned uh, almost what sounds like during the workday, that that is, is it something that works simultaneously with the school district? Like almost like a, <clears throat> if a student was going to see school-based counseling and, you know, they go and they meet with a counselor or occupational therapy, is it within the school day? Is it after school? Is it weekends? How are the confines and how does it, because it seems like it would be a great partnership and really supportive of public and private schools. Um, how does that interaction work um, to, to, again, a, a reading kid is a great kid for every environment. So any support that's occurring, you know, I think all educators across whatever field it is, is, you know, would be thrilled with that yeah. scenario. Thank you for helping me to clarify. Yes, we do partner with schools um, and it is part of the school day. So every school that we partner with we do have a reading center within the room within the school building and it is stacked with the materials that would be needed so you know we have a read aloud library the curriculum and so forth and we work with student with the teachers i'm sorry the teachers or reading specialists to identify students that would be good for our program and we do an assessment on them and get them involved in the program. And it's 
a one-on-one with a community volunteer and they have 45-minute sessions and a student typically comes two times a week. What is <clears throat> What are some of the qualifications to, one, for a school to qualify to be able to obtain these supports from your organization and then qualifying students? How is that working in conjunction with them, possibly identifying them just for their own tiered support or special education? You know, what are those different qualifications for the school and then for the student? Um, For a school, um, a school, first of all, most of the schools that we work with are, are, sorry, most of the schools where we work are Title I schools. um, And the principal or school leadership shows interest in the program. Um, There is a fee for service. Um, It is a small fee for service. And that is really to create, you know, some sort of buy-in to our program. Um, And then in terms of, what was the second part of the question? How how you're qualifying students, what you're using to decide whether a student is going to be able to participate in the services. So usually we say that we work with students that are anywhere from six months to two and a half years behind grade level. And so we work with the teachers to identify like who are those students. We do assess our students. We use um, STAR as our assessment tool. Um, And so we assess students to see on our end if they meet our qualifications. And if they do, then we assess them to see what skills they have. And then we place them appropriately in our curriculum. Is your organization supporting students or children and parents outside of schools. So is this something that a parent can take advantage of as well, or is it solely happening in partnership in the schools? It is happening in partnership in the schools. We do offer um, supports for the family, and that has been, you know, since COVID. You know, I think a lot of uh, schools and even programs have realize that, you know, we do need to involve parents more in, in their students' education. And so we do offer, um, and this is region by region, there are some regions that have done literacy workshops for families, there are some regions that um, have provided literacy packets where the students can take them home. Uh, here in Tulsa, we've done, you know, during the summer, booked up for summer where the students get a backpack at the end of the year and it has some literacy activities in it, as well as books for them to enjoy over the summer vacation. So we do offer. So the pro- yeah, the program sounds wonderful. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for you to expand to Lancaster, Pennsylvania as soon as possible. But um what are some of the, you know, the biggest successes that you've been able to witness and, and the, it sounds like work worth doing uh, very much so and very rewarding. What are some of the things that in isolation uh, you feel like you're able to accomplish in this role that was difficult to feel or experience when you had the, you know, the responsibilities of running a classroom? Um, 
Because I think we all want that goal, right? We all want to see kids be successful in learning, specifically in reading. Um, what does that kind of free you up to experience that, you know, those celebrations mm-hmm. you experience? Yeah, I can think of, you know, here at Reading Partners, I actually started off as a um, coordinator of the Reading Center. So I ran the day-to-day operations. And so I got to work specifically with the students, the teachers, and the volunteers um, on a school-based level. And so there I was able to really see a lot of growth in my students. So I know I can tell a specific story about um, one student in particular. Yeah, yeah, please tell that story. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, One particular student um, I had, it's a little girl, and actually she was a second grader, uh, English language learner, and um, actually starting off, she started with zero, um, knowing, not knowing any letters or letter sounds, and usually our students need to be conversational in English. I think she might have been a little bit less, but One thing I did know is that the student was a very hard worker and, you know, slowly during her second year, year, she learned all her letter and letter sounds. By third grade, she was really good at attacking words to decode them and um, really working on comprehension. And then I know that in fourth and fifth grade, she went on to kind of a different school, but I was able to stay connected with her because I knew somebody at that school. And I just know that she continued to grow as she continued throughout her school, um, throughout her school. And so that was one student, you know, I always say, I don't really have favorites, but she was kind of my favorite you know, <laughs> throughout that time there. And I mean, I can say a lot of students, I could see them becoming more confident and more comfortable about even just talking about books or just, you know, trying to do the work. So I I feel that, you know, as we are, as an educator, you want all of your students to grow. And sometimes that growth is, it's different from each student. And I think I get to see that with the students that we work with, you know, some of them start you know, kind of on the lower end, and they might take 10 steps, and somebody might take 20 steps. But you know, those 10 steps are important. And those 20 steps are important. And we get I get to celebrate that with the students. Um, You know, I also enjoyed that with my whole classroom. But you know, here I get to do it too. Right. So you mentioned phonics being a, a a key piece in that foundation for for our young readers. So what else what else does your program value, and especially working with those kindergarten through third grade readers that you you think is pivotal for them to to set that foundation? So once they they hit the hit fourth grade, they are now capable and confident to read to learn. Yeah. So. Yes, we do focus on phonics as we are um, teaching those decoding skills. But even before that, we work on those pre-reading skills, um, the phonological and phonemic awareness, 
um, to make sure that students are able to, you know, separate the sounds or manipulate the sounds into of different words. So we do focus on those things. Another thing that we focus on is comprehension. So even when a student is still learning their letter and letter sounds, we still read grade level text with them and we um, work on comprehension. So getting students to talk about books. We work on vocabulary to make sure students are learning grade appropriate vocabulary. Another um, value that's important to us is that students see themselves through books. So we, in our libraries, we have um, diversity so that students see children um, that look like them um, a lot. So that's also very important for our organization as well. So continuing that growth, you know, of the learner and, and you being the partnership, what is something that you feel like from your end, you feel like you would love to share with a child's teacher that you're also working with that could, you know, um, since it is kind of collaboratively, you know, a process. What are some of those things that you wish uh, teachers on the other side knew with you being having that opportunity to specialize? Um, and what are some of the things that you feel like um, you've experienced in that collaboration that you found helpful to, again, get the best for mm -hmm. the student? So as we are working with teachers, definitely is sharing, you know, we have the our assessment so sharing you know how the student did we also have the opportunity just to share like today the student you know what they worked on and so um we work to keep our teachers involved in you know what their student is doing so that they know exactly what our curriculum is going to teach their students. So like we have a roadmap that shows exactly what students are working on. We, this is where your students started. This is where they are right now. These are the skills that they have worked on. And we also like to know what they're working on in class because teachers might teach certain skills a specific way and if we can do it the same way within the reading center it's like we're also enforcing what's going on in the classroom within the reading center and so that's the kind of collaboration that we can do it's like making sure that we're also using the same language that teachers are using the same some of the same um, techniques that teachers are using that fall within our program how, how long are your typical relationships with <clears throat> with schools specifically? So once you get set up in a school, are you finding that you're you're there for extended periods of time because it's such a powerful partnership, or is it more of a short term idea where you're hoping to target specific students and then kind of empower the staff to continue with that program without you? Well, we um, we have long term relationships. I know here in Tulsa. Um, we are about to celebrate 10 years in Tulsa and we have, we started off, I believe in about seven schools and 
and I believe we have, well, I think one of them, of the original we've lost, but for a lot of the schools, we've been there for 10 years. So um, right now we're in 23 different schools. So that shows like we've grown. And so I know that one um, question that we ask school leaders is, would you recommend reading partners to other leaders? And we do get that principals are saying, yes, we would recommend reading partners to other school leaders. I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer in a lot of capacities. I, I don't know what that fee is, but you know, anything that's going to support that common good is uh, probably money well spent. Or, you know, in a lot of cases, school districts using that budget money in ways that probably don't provide the same. Return. Yeah, for sure. So, I would love to transition into our exit ticket, which is the same four questions we ask every guest every week. Question number one for you, Tammy. What is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Um, one thing I think that a teacher can do to make a student's school experience is really getting to know the student, um, not just their name and like general information, but just really getting to know the student and letting the student know that you're there and invested in them. That is a great one. So this could be back from your classroom days. This could be, you know, for in the nonprofit days as well. But what is a, you know, a piece of advice that really stuck with you that you may have gotten from a colleague, a supervisor, or even a student? A piece of advice that I've gotten from you know, something that sticks with you that, you know, keeps your, you know, your focus sharp or, you know, things that you think of when things get really challenging. Um, I think one thing that um, has really gotten me really motivated this year and, and, and all is that our um, CEO of Reading Partners really is focused on that we are laser focused on impacting the students that we have, and that is like urgent to us. And so I really do, when I'm sitting next to a student, I am laser focused on that student. And I really think about like what the student deserves, what they're capable of. And then sometimes I'm struck with the reality, but I really wanna focus on that this student um, is really capable of achieving. They really deserve the best that we can give them. And those are things that are important. So I'll adjust this uh, next question slightly, um, but we recognize that you know the school year for us goes in waves as classroom teachers, as you would know, like beginning of the school year is great usually. You have that honeymoon phase. Um, there are challenging times for us, it might be, um, conferences, report cards, you know, the the winter months, those type. So what is something, you know, in your role or, you know, for education in general that you feel like you can share that helps educators power up through those, those times of weakness um, to push through and, and remember what that overall goal is for kids? 
you know, um, I think our kids are on a journey with us. And so they're depending on us as adults and as educators. And so even though we're feeling that low at that time, we do have a responsibility to get them to the other side of the journey. And so um, my goal should be to make sure that they get as far or get where they need to go. And so I think when we're feeling kind of that down part, we can just say we still have work to do and just I want to get that student and that student is depending on me. Um, I think, you know, there are lots of things that are changing now. I, I know my classroom is a lot different than when I walk into classrooms nowadays, you know, I think I was still kind of in the like seat, you know, I did have tables, but, um, I know sometimes I walk in, I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's kind of noisy in here. Um, and even like with our volunteers, like sometimes they think the classroom is really noisy, but for the students, they're still focused and they're still doing the work. And so I think um, it's good to like show that you're a learner as well. And I think as you're uh, learning new techniques and applying that, it, it really is an example. You're giving an example of being a learner. I totally agree. So last thing that we have really for you is, you know, I know I've enjoyed this conversation. What are the best ways that we can kind of follow along with your journey specifically, as well as your organization um, as it continues to make a difference in kids' lives? Yeah. Well, I will say that um, I encourage anybody in the community to get involved with, um, get involved in education, really. Um, our students really need support and reading partners is a way that you can support students. Um, and it's by volunteering your time to work with a student. Uh, you can go to our website at readingpartners.org and hit volunteer and you can do that. I think it will take our community to help answer some of these questions and address some of the, the needs that we have um, because, you know, there are schools that are still not fully staffed. Um, and so some of the things that we're seeing, um, it will take a community effort in order for us to um, get through them. Excellent. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Tammy. I, you know, I, I know uh, you and your organization reached out to us and I didn't know what to fully expect. I just thought like it sounded like something important to bring to our podcast and, and your organization sounds fantastic. And the message you just said is, is really wrapping it all up in a nutshell that that education really is a, is a community effort. It's a partnership effort between the parents, the community as a whole, as well as the educators. And, and even if you don't have children of your own because they're grown or you don't have children at all, you know, that education in your community is still so important because it's the foundation for what the future of the community 
is going to look like. And so I would also encourage our listeners to check out your website, see if you are in their area or in that region or forwarded along to an educator friend or an administrator friend in those regions to check out how those services can, can help your schools because it's, it's always a challenge to get as many services as we possibly can and human power is usually the hardest service to come by. So anytime there's other organizations and opportunities out there to really support and empower those students, especially with reading at a young age, there's, there's really nothing more valuable for, for our learners than that. So I really appreciate you coming on with us. Thank you again so much. We will link up to your website in our show notes page, as well as the show description that you can see on the podcast app or YouTube, wherever you're listening or watching to us. And for any of our new listeners, I would encourage you to subscribe to our show so you can continue to learn with us in the journey of, of amazing guests that we have every week. So thank you again, Tammy and Matt. Why don't you take us on out here? All right. As we power down this episode, Tammy, you have left us feeling powered up. We appreciate your time and what you're doing for the world of education and for those listening. Hopefully you have a great week and we can't wait to talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.